Now, by the way, just notice that the Bible highlights here the fact that it is Judah who is sent ahead to arrange the rendezvous with Joseph. Well, of course, we remember that it was Judah who was responsible for their separation in the first place. After God changes us, he very often gives us the chance to make amends for the wrongs we have done. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. After God changes us, he often gives us the chance to make amends for the wrongs we've done. As we've been observing in this story, God doesn't just save people, he disciplines them and he teaches them and restores them to the dignity and character that he intended for them. That is very good news indeed. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 46. This chapter brings us very near to the end of the patriarchal narrative. The brothers have returned to Canaan and have told their father that Joseph is alive. They have told him that Joseph is not just alive, Joseph is ruling in Egypt, just as those childhood dreams had foretold. They told him of Pharaoh's offer and of Egypt's bounty and of Joseph's eagerness to take care of them. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Beersheba had been Isaac's home base, and so the fact that Jacob went there and the fact that he addressed God as God of my father Isaac likely means to communicate that Jacob was seeking God's permission to leave the land of promise. Now, this is very interesting, and it seems to indicate that Jacob was learning from his family history. Abraham got into trouble when he went down to Egypt during a time of famine. Jacob wants to make sure that he isn't repeating the mistakes of his forebears. So he prays to the God of his father, and God answers. We see that in verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So God tells Jacob that going down to Egypt this time will not be an act of unfaith as it had been in the time of Abraham. On the contrary, God is in this particular journey. God has purposes for it, for their I will make you into a great nation. So why was it wrong for Abraham to go down to Egypt during a time of famine in chapter 12, but not wrong for Jacob to do the same in chapter 46? That's a good question. And I suppose there are a couple of different ways you could answer it. You could say that chapter 12 comes before chapter 15. In chapter 15, God said that a part of his plan for the future was a rather long sojourn in Egypt. But Chapter 12 comes before that, so Abraham was jumping the gun. Maybe a better way to say it would be to say that timing is everything. 
Some things in life are black and white. Many things in life are black and white. They're always right or always wrong. It is always wrong to commit adultery. There is no day, no week, no month, and no year of your life when committing adultery will be a good thing. It will always be a bad thing. And conversely, there will never be a wrong time to show grace or to be patient or to give generously to the poor. Those are always good things, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But not everything in life falls into that category. There are some things where timing is everything. As it says in Ecclesiastes 3, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to be plucked up, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So sometimes whether a thing is right or wrong has everything to do with the season. In Genesis chapter 12, the emphasis was supposed to be on discovery and trust. Abraham was learning who God was and learning to trust in God's goodness and generosity. Running to Egypt when things got hard was therefore running counter to the purpose of God. But in Genesis 46, the emphasis is on building We've just observed the climax of God's sanctifying work in the lives of Jacob's sons. They are new men. They're ready to serve as foundation stones in the Old Testament version of God's covenant community. They aren't perfect, but they have been prepared. And now it's time to build. And so God is going to hide them away in Egypt, and he is going to make of them a great nation. So going to Egypt now is good. Going to Egypt in chapter 12 was bad. Like I said, sometimes timing is everything. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I feel like we need to dig a little deeper into that. We do better as Bible readers with straightforward commands like, thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt not murder. Like, I understand that, and I know how to apply that. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 a year, that means the same thing. Don't kill, don't commit adultery. I like that. But here you're saying that sometimes timing is everything. Sometimes it may be good to do something, and sometimes it might be bad. Am I hearing that right? Yes, you're hearing that right. And you are right in saying that most Bible readers need a little help with that. This sort of nuance takes us into the realm of wisdom. I quoted from Ecclesiastes in the program audio, which of course comes from the wisdom section of the Bible. Wisdom is slightly different than law. Thou shalt not commit adultery is law. So there's no timing aspect there. You just don't commit adultery ever. All the time, Monday to Sunday, it means the same thing. Don't commit adultery. But Wisdom requires you to know what time it is. So, for example, Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. All right, that's 
Pretty straightforward, or at least it sounds like it's pretty straightforward. Answer not a fool according to his folly. No problem. If someone says something foolish and ignorant to you, don't respond. Fair enough. But then the very next verse in the book of Proverbs says this, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So wait a second, which is it? Are we supposed to answer a fool according to his folly or not? And what's the answer? It depends on what time it is. (laughs) Exactly right. right. Wisdom is about knowing when to apply which biblical principle. When to foreground one theme while backgrounding another. Wisdom is about balance. And you need to be able to do that because life is complicated. And not every new situation is exactly like the last situation. So in this case here in Proverbs that we've been talking about, it really depends on what kind of fool you're talking to at any given time. You can usually tell really quick whether the person you're talking to is open to correction or whether they're just vomiting all their thoughts into the air or out onto their social media feed just to make themselves heard. Some people can be reasoned with and some can't be. And so you try to figure out what kind of person you're talking to and you act accordingly. Oftentimes, the course of wisdom is just to walk away. So Proverbs 19.11 says, for example, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. So sometimes a person shows their dignity and their wisdom by walking away from an insult. He knows that there is no way to wrestle with a pig without getting dirty. So he just turns and walks away. He does not answer a fool according to his folly. But sometimes he takes the risk. Sometimes he senses a teachable spirit. So he does answer the fool. And lo and behold, the conversation bears fruit. It really depends on who you're talking to. Proverbs 19.25 says, Strike a scoffer and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. So it depends. Wisdom in the Bible is all about knowing the situation and knowing in light of the situation which biblical principles to bring to bear. Okay, so to bring that back to our story, the difference here in Genesis 46 is that God is clearly wanting Jacob and his family to go to Egypt. Trusting God here means doing the opposite of what it meant in Genesis 12. Yes, because in Genesis 12, God had told Abraham to go to the land that he would show him. And Abraham turned back when things got hard. God wasn't leading Abraham down to Egypt in Genesis 12, but he is leading Jacob there here in Genesis 46. So you have to know where you are in the story, and you have to know what it is that God is doing at the time. That's what Grandma used to call discernment, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Call it discernment, call it wisdom, call it whatever you like. The key is to know what God is doing. The key is to ask a lot of why questions. If Jacob had just decided, nope, Egypt is bad, nothing good ever happens in Egypt, then he would have missed out on what God was doing, and it would have cost him and his children and his grandchildren their lives. All right, that's very helpful. Let's jump back into the text now, right where we left off. Sometimes timing is everything. And that is why Jacob wisely went to the Lord before making this decision. It wasn't black or white. It wasn't simply a matter of avoiding evil or choosing the good. The way ahead wasn't clear. So Jacob sought the Lord. This is wisdom. Proverbs Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct 
your paths. I love what Matthew Henry says about this entire episode. He says, Those who desire to keep up communion with God shall find that it never fails on his side. If we speak to him as we ought, he will not fail to speak to us. That's a good word. Verse 5 goes on to say, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. That's a very telling phrase. Jacob paused, unlike father, grandfather Abraham, unlike his own younger self. Jacob doesn't just charge in. He's a man of faith now. He, he wants to do the will of the Lord. So he stops. He prays. God speaks. And then, and only then, Jacob moves. And this is yet another indicator in the text telling us that Jacob is a changed man. The story goes on to say, The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimram, the sons of Zebulun, Zerad, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Paden Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether his sons and his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad. Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Biriath, and Sira, their sister, and the sons of Biria, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. Now, Just to pause here, it seems a bit incredible to us that Benjamin could have ten sons. Isn't he just a little boy in this story? Well, of course, nowhere in the text does it say that he's a little boy at this point. The text says that he was the youngest brother and the child of his father's old age. But if you read carefully and note the time indicators, it is clear that Benjamin has been a young man throughout the narrative of the famine and the various back-and-forth journeyings to Egypt. Derek Kidner says Benjamin was at least in his 20s more probably in his 30s, since Joseph was now about 40. 
So if Benjamin was 33 years old, then it is entirely conceivable that he could have 10 kids by the time his family migrated down to Egypt. He was obviously very healthy and very blessed by the Lord. We pick up the story in verse 23. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, if you're good at math and can add pretty quick while you read, then you probably notice that all of the people just listed don't actually add up exactly to the number 70. 33 descendants are attributed to Leah, 16 to Zilpah, 12 to Rachel, and 7 to Bilhah. That's 68. But Er and Onan died in Canaan, so they obviously didn't make the trip. That takes us down to 66, the number given in verse 26. If you then add in the two sons born to Joseph in Egypt, you get 68. And then if you add in Dinah, you get 69, not 70. Now, It's probably the case that we are meant to add in Jacob himself, but it's also true that we are to see 70 as a sort of symbolic number. Numbers in Hebrew culture often pull double duty as symbols. The JPS Torah commentary says, for example, that the number 70 is used here, as elsewhere in biblical literature, to express the idea of totality. And that is very likely the case. This is the sum total of the ground floor of the people of God, you might say. One full family, 70 people, from which God would build a nation and through which God would bring a savior for the entire world. Verse 28 tells us, he, meaning Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Now, by the way, just notice that the Bible highlights here the fact that it is Judah who is sent ahead to arrange the rendezvous with Joseph. Well, of course, we remember that it was Judah who was responsible for their separation in the first place. After God changes us, he very often gives us the chance to make amends for the wrongs we have done. Thanks be to God. Verse 29 says, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now here we see Joseph's concern for his family to remain apart from the center of Egyptian cultural influence. He wants them to be in Egypt, but not of Egypt. 
Egypt will serve as the nursery for the nation of Israel, but it must not serve as their standard of reference. Israel is to be a people apart. They are for the nations, but they cannot be like the nations. Israel must learn to look to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, we were talking earlier about wisdom, and it seems like we're coming back to the idea of wisdom here at the end of Genesis 46. Joseph's plan to keep his family away from the center of Egyptian cultural life seems like the course of prudence. It seems like what we hear in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 when he says, quote, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's John 17, 14 to 16. So there's this kind of in the world, but not of the world theme in Jesus's prayer. And we're seeing a bit of that same concern here in Joseph, right? Yeah, I think that's right. There's a sense in which Egypt serves as an incubator for the people of God provides them with a safe place, a place that is generally drought-proof because of the Nile. It provides them with a reasonably stable culture. And because of Joseph's position, a reasonably stable political situation in which this little family can grow and grow and grow until eventually it becomes a fairly significant nation in its own right. But at the same time, Joseph doesn't want them to absorb too much of this culture that he knows from the inside. Joseph has lived on the inside, the inner circle in Egypt. He knows what Egyptian culture is really all about. So he wants to provide a bit of a buffer. And we'll see the wisdom of that later on. A lot of what God is doing in the wilderness narrative in Leviticus and Numbers is giving the Israelites the opportunity to unlearn some of the habits and rituals they picked up in Egypt. So, for example, in Leviticus 18, verse 3, God says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So God says, I don't want you to to be like where you came from. And I don't want you to be like where you're going. I want you to live and behave the way I tell you. Be holy as I am holy. Old Testament and new Growing up as the people of God generally involves unlearning a fair bit of stuff that we pick up from the culture. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're going to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 